Sunday's moon. You see him up there? Strong, isn't it? He's shining right into my window. Why don't you draw the curtain? I see. Turn off the moon, turn on the moon, just as you like. <laughs> Some people can do that easier than others. Aren't you a bit hasty, Mr. Bradley? Maybe I am. I'm sorry. You see, but you wouldn't understand anyway. How could you? This is the first vacation I've ever had in my life, and who knows if I'll get a chance again. A few more days, and I'll be back in Detroit. And all the fun's over. Big chimneys, black smoke, hammering, noise, and work, and more work. And I couldn't live without it. I love it, and I hate it. You know, Mr. Bradley, the Spanish moon is very becoming to you. I never saw you in this light before. You weren't even listening. Oh, yes, I was. I heard everything you said. About yourself, Detroit, your work. You love it and you hate it. Isn't that the way you feel about me? Not exactly. I, I never said I love you. <laughs> Liar. When? Maybe I dreamed when I was asleep. Oh, yes, I must have dreamed. Because I heard your voice saying you were crazy about me that you loved me. But I'm sure you didn't mean it. I mean everything I said. No, you don't. Madeline, I love you. When you wake up, I'm going to take you in my arms and kiss you. Listening to Sass Mouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. What do you get when a glamorous jewel thief meets a big galoot from Detroit? Desire from 1936 is one of the most enchanting romances from Hollywood studio era. Under the magic of a Spanish moon, Marlena Dietrich trades the rackets for an earnest man. She shines as a glamour queen turned Detroit housewife. In 1935, Marlena was at a crossroads in her career. After making seven pictures with Joseph von Sternberg, a man who was considered her Svengali, executives in Paramount Studio decided the professional collaboration between the director and star had run its course. According to the studio, von Sternberg's productions had lost their appeal with audiences. The director now threatened the box office draw of one of their biggest stars. The studio forged a campaign to rehabilitate Marlena's screen persona from becoming overshadowed by Baroque pictures with poor ticket sales such as The Scarlet Empress and The Devil's a Woman. Instead of big sets and backstage drama, Men in the front office wanted to rescue Marlena with a light romantic comedy. Resigned to the front office decision, Marlena renewed her contract with Paramount, but this time she included a stipulation that she would have Ernest Lubitsch as a director. Although she was ready to console herself with having Lubitsch instead of von Sternberg, it was not in the cards because in February 1935, mogul Adolf Zukor assigned Lubitsch as head of production for Paramount Pictures, 
which meant he would oversee 50 or 60 films per year, leaving no time left to direct Marlena. Instead, Lubitsch joined the set of Marlena's next picture, The Pearl Necklace, as producer, and later changed the title to Desire. It was a remake of a Brigitte Helm picture that she made twice in 1933, once in Germany and once in France. Lubitsch cast Gary Cooper as co-star. In the past, Coop had always turned down reteaming with his co-star from Morocco because he refused to work with Fractious von Sternberg. Biographers report that Coop worried about being able to play a sophisticated comedy until Lubitsch reassured him. Evidently, the production chief soothed Coop by observing, Very well, Gary. Do not try to be clever. Just say the line straight and give them your own sweet personality, and they will be excellent comedy lines. Lubitsch identified a magic power that Coop had over a camera, a trait he felt he shared with Greta Garbo. The camera lens captured something in both Coop and Garbo that remained invisible to the naked eye. Lubitsch declared, Gary Cooper is like wax you could mold in front of a camera. Originally, Marlena had intended that John Gilbert would play Prince Carlos Margoli, fellow crook and the ex-lover who pretends to be her uncle. Marlena had taken Gilbert into her home, weaned him from the bottle, and nursed him back to health with home-cooked meals. Gilbert soon developed confidence to face the cameras for a series of tests shot in Technicolor. Throughout July and August 1935, Gilbert had booked a personal appearance tour to reconnect with fans before the new picture began shooting in September. Once cast and crew were together in pre-production, Marlena took up an affair with Gary Cooper, as one does. Gilbert buckled under pressure whether from the stakes for a comeback or the idea of being replaced by a more popular film star, Gilbert fell back into his cups. Gilbert had a heart attack and was taken off the picture, replaced with John Holliday. Gilbert was not long for the world. He died before the picture premiered, only 36 years old. Since Lubitsch was unavailable to direct, Zucor let Marlena pick her replacement. She chose Frank Borzaghi, who was loaned out from Warner Brothers. Previously, on the set of Song of Songs, the first picture she made in Hollywood without von Sternberg, Marlena had struggled to, to, to establish a rapport with director Ruben Mamoulian. They were great friends later, but when they first worked together, they clashed. Imagine, here was a star used to a director who shouted abuse as a production method, but she couldn't figure out what Mamoulian wanted. Marlena felt the lack of harmony with her director transferred to the picture. At one point, she was at loose ends and made a desperate bid to Borzaghi to help rescue the picture. Borzaghi had been in the middle of shooting Secrets with Mary Pickford and Leslie Howard. Nonetheless, Borzaghi stepped in and reshot scenes. Marlena was convinced he had redeemed Song of Songs and on that basis chose him to helm Desire. On the first day's shoot, Borzaghi took only two close-ups of Marlena, which would have been a radical departure from von Sternberg's infamous multiple-take production method. 
Although critics have argued over the extent of the Lubitsch touch or his influence on the picture, Marlena stated emphatically in a late interview that Borzaghi was the only director on Desire. Biographers have noted that Lubitsch did supervise retakes during a day and a half of reshooting to satisfy demands from the Production Code Administration office. But that was only because Borzaghi was already off working on another picture, Hearts Divided. I would argue that early in the picture, by the third scene, it's clear that Desire is a Borzaghi picture through and through. The picture begins with a focus on Gary Cooper, who plays Tom Bradley, an automotive engineer, on temporary assignment in a Parisian car company. In the opening scene, he practices tough talk with the boss until the camera pulls back and viewers see an empty chair. Film critics have cited the scene as pure Lubitsch, the gag with an empty chair. Right away, it characterizes Tom as the unassertive type who needs a pep talk to work himself up before he can ask for what he has coming to him. But the next scene shifts away from the Lubitsch touch and assumes a tone that is pure Borzaghi. Rather than argue, the boss immediately grants Tom Spanish holiday and even loans Tom a car to use for the trip. There's a catch, though. Tom must agree to carry a sign over the spare wheel that advertises the company's new model, the Bronson 8. William Frawley, playing Mr. Gibson, the boss, has two models of the sign in his office. He's unable to decide which one sounds best. For a moment, Gary Cooper cringes a little when presented with the billboards. The boss wants feedback, which is better. I'm delighted to drive a Bronson 8, or I'm glad to drive a Bronson 8. Gary Cooper makes that face like he found a fly in his cafe au lait. Tom offers arguments against both choices. Neither slogan suits. The first is too snooty, the second too weak. If this were a Lubitsch picture, say with Herbert Marshall, Frederick March, or Gary Cooper, the engineer would have spun a searing critique of any slogan the boss had offered from a basic rejection of crass commercialism, tainting the sanctity of a man's private holiday. The engineer would have outsmarted the boss and driven off without a sign. Yet Borzaghi's hero isn't cosmopolitan nor a cynic. When the camera cuts to the next shot, a close-up on the back of the loan-out car on the road for Spain, it carries cardboard signage, which reads, I am happy to drive a Bronson 8. Coop's Tom isn't a highbrow who objects to the company's bottom line. He earnestly believed the boss had chosen the wrong words. And he earnestly believes in the car. For a simple man like Tom, happy suffices where delighted and glad misfired. Tom Bradley doesn't have ulterior motives or a hidden agenda. What you see is what you get. Like Capra and La Cava, Borzaghi was a romantic populist, a man of the people. Not only is Tom happy to advertise his feelings in print, he also improvises a song sung to the tune of Salido Lindo, the romantic Mexican folk song. Instead of lyrics about a beautiful maiden, Gary belts out lyrics praising the joy of driving his Bronson 8, 
Behind the wheel on an adventure, Tom reverts to an innocent boy with thoughts uncomplicated by anything other than the thrill of driving, chasing boyhood dreams. Instead of a little rain, into every greenhorn automotive engineer's life must fall a glamorous jewel thief. Before Marlena appears on screen, we hear her in her native setting, the back seat of a limousine, telling the driver to move on. When we do finally see her, Marlena wears an aigret feather hat and spotless white jersey dress. She alights from the limo and strides down the corridor of the jewel salon with the same command Marlena used when she played Catherine the Great, dressed in white, on horseback, chasing the opposition from the castle. Marlena's character, Madeline, devises an intricate ruse, impersonating a bourgeois housewife to steal a strand of pearls from Monsieur Duval, the jeweler, played by Ernest Cossart. Duval justifies the two million franc price tag by explaining it took years to match the pearls, which he exalts to calling mermaid tears. Marlena plays the scene in the salon with exquisite underplay. She uses restraint and doesn't overdo a thing. Marlena refuses a cigarette when offered. A cigarette might have given her an outlet for a nervous tick or helped her relax a little too much for the job at hand. At the very least, a woman in white doesn't want to worry about ashes falling on her immaculate ensemble. Marlena doesn't flirt, bat her lashes, or give anything away other than a mild reassurance that if she takes the pearls, he will never see them again. She keeps her cards held very close to her chest. In Marlena's racket that she's devised, a renowned psychiatrist, Dr. Poquet, played by Ellen Mowbray, serves as the stooge fake husband who will pay the jeweler for the necklace. Marlena plays a dual role, a pampered wife for one man and a wife saddled with a husband who wears nightgowns for the other. For Marlena's Madeline, getting the pearls is like taking candy from a baby. Both men think they're in charge when really they never saw her coming. While the men quibble about whose business they're conducting, Madeline flees with the purloined pearls. Behind the wheel of a sporty roadster, top-down, scarf blowing in the wind, racing for the Spanish border, Madeline passes the American engineer taking a selfie with a guitar and splashes him with mud. Gary pursues her for an apology. I marvel at the way Marlena asks Tom for assistance with the horn. She uses a flat tone devoid of any emotion, but the language she uses is feminine, decorous, and formally polite. Marlena's delivery clearly tells the audience that her character knows exactly what men need to hear to do what she wants, and that she had a great deal of experience asking men to do what she wants. Madeline knows the words, but she doesn't have any time or patience or desire to put any feeling into it just right now when she's so close to the border. Thrown together by some mud, a malfunctioning car horn, and later by a ruse at customs, where Madeline deposits the mermaid tears in Tom's coat pocket, she is nearly in control 
until the clumsy tourist forces her to improvise another plan. She's forced to trash her car and hitch a ride with Tom. Marlena turns on the charm for her quarry. What if she catches cold? She might just have to put her hand into his pocket. She promises. So the engineer will pull over and put the jacket on, the one with the pearls. Tom pulls over, dips into his suitcase, but puts on a different coat, not the one with the pearls. Marlena reacts to the jacket on two levels. Initially, she's annoyed that he's not wearing the jacket with the pearls, but she also objects at an aesthetic level to the replacement coat. She asks him if she's sure the coat goes with the trousers. Anyone who's a devotee of style knows that one of the most polite ways you can object to an article of clothing is to ask if something matches. It's far less confrontational than offering an actual opinion. Tom assures Madeline it does. He had the pants specially made to go with the jacket. She pauses at the logic of taking an extra commitment and expense to such a hideous jacket. The jacket is so ugly, it's genius. The wardrobe department could have put Gary in any old coat. In Paramount Studio, male stars often wore their own clothes for the camera, as Mitchell Lyson noted about the pictures he directed early on with Fred McMurray. Lyson recalled that Fred didn't have much in the way of wardrobe when he started out in pictures and often borrowed his clothes. Gary, by contrast, had a reputation as a natty dresser with an extensive wardrobe, but I doubt the jacket came from his closet. This second jacket is purposeful and an inspired choice. Tom Bradley's jacket is loud. It's so busy, overpowering. It looks like a pattern for an expressway or a construction scaffolding. It's something you would expect to find on a man who spends his days tinkering with machine engines rather than, say, poetry, oil paintings, or the finer points of interior design. Tom's clothes clash with those worn by the phony Prince Margoli, played by John Halliday. Prince Carlos wears crisp linens and tropical weight wools, clothes that breathe and move in a hot climate. In the resort town of San Sebastian, next to stunning views of the sea, impressive architecture, and Basque heritage style, in strides Coop wearing an eyesore. Tom's clothes are heavy and stiff with sunless industry, a sharp contrast to the style of the jewel thieves who live like the leisure class. When Tom and Madeline meet again, Borzegi inserts a moment where audiences see the full wattage of the Dietrich screen allure. And San Sebastian, in a hideout with Carlos, Marlena Madeline, prepares to meet an angry coop who will be quite sore because she drove off in his car and left him stranded on the side of the road. Marlena drapes herself against the terrace door, one leg thrust forward in a suggestive pose. She's wearing a diaphanous chiffon dressing gown trimmed with white fox fur. Dietrich gives him a sultry look, drowsy eyelids, pouty lips, with a slouch from the middle. Next to a four-poster bed, Dietrich exhibits the early stages of arousal for a gangly visitor. 
Gary marches into the lavish suite to give out to Marlena for stealing his car, then stops abruptly when he notices her looking like an erotic form of cotton candy. Instantly, Gary's mood shifts and the flirtation resumes. Here's a woman who stole his car and left him in the middle of nowhere, but he enthusiastically commits to more. He doesn't mind. It's all part of the adventure. Soon, the trio moves to another locale, a private villa, which makes a convenient hideout from police. Neither Tom nor Madeline have counted on the, the, the narcotic effects of a Spanish moon. Once Tom is pulled into its orbit, he's in love and transforms from a factory drone to a swoon merchant. The powerful moonbeams and Mar- aids Marlena's sexual lure, and they make Tom a better man. Even his style improves. He ditches the ugly jacket for a soft v-neck jumper that suits the climate and the romantic tone. Emboldened by the lunar cycle and hot sex, he turns the tables on Prince Carlos and Aunt Olga over chicken fricassee. Marlena's Madeline is also affected by the Spanish moon. She decides to go straight and tells Carlos in the most dramatic terms. She thanks him for bestowing the Countess credentials, but now she wants to strike them, she says, from my stationery, my lingerie, and my life. In paper, silk, and the flesh, Madeline has committed to haggling with the butcher and baker as Tom's wife in Detroit. She won't wind up as an ex-con who drinks too much brandy because she threw away her chance at love like Aunt Olga, played with vinegar charm by Zephy Tilbury. The Spanish moon is, in a sense, reproduced on the screen with a soft-focused photography of cinematographer Charles Lang, who won an Oscar for Best Cinematography for A Farewell to Arms, directed by Frank Borzaghi and starring Gary Cooper. In 1930, Lang started at Paramount, paying his way through the University of Southern California by working in the lab in Paramount. He was responsible for a variety of jobs in the lab and learned the craft from the bottom up. When he was offered a chance to work as an assistant director, he dropped out of college and devoted his career to sitting behind the camera. By the time Lang lensed Marlena for Desire, he was a master at shooting the stars. In a 1933 article for American Cinematographer, he made a compelling case for the use of diffusion, Like many other people, I usually think of diffusion as a method to conceal or disguise or downplay something on the screen. It's easy to talk about diffusion as a means of softening the ravages of time on a star's face, a tool to erase the lines, wrinkles, and shadows. But Lang defines diffusion in a completely different way. He argues that it can be used for emphasis as a way of showing an audience what's important, especially in a romantic picture. Lang explained that if it doesn't match the scene or is overused, diffusion is like when a novelist cheats and tells about a character rather than shows the reader. Or it's like when an actor relies on tricks to set the tone for a scene rather than letting it develop naturally. 
Lang quotes George Arliss, the actor who said that acting wasn't so much about being natural as it was being unnatural without getting caught. Lang argues for the judicious use of diffusion. It wouldn't be called for, he said, in gritty realism like Scarface, nor in heavy drama like Jekyll and Hyde, or a light comedy. In those cases, you need sharp visual contrasts to highlight the action. But for romance and melodrama, diffusion applied with a deft hand serves the story. Diffusion highlights the star's faces and their emotions instead of costume or scenery. That he identified the importance of matching an emotional pitch so early in his career is perhaps why the New York Times obituary held Lang as a woman's photographer. In the scene set in the, in the private villa under the Spanish moon, Lang's diffused focus matches the emotions of two people who fall in love before our eyes. In one shot, a rare open-mouthed kiss between the stars, Lang establishes one of the most indelible images from all of the 1930s romances using soft-focus photography. Under the Spanish moon, two lovers are uninhibited, untroubled by the past or their reputation or how they earn a living. Tom's no wage slave, and Madeline is much more than a thief trafficking stolen goods. Together, they can rewrite the story and choose a happy ending. If all it takes is a spanking and a Detroit address to have Gary Cooper in the fade out, I'm sure plenty of women would raise their hands and volunteer. During the shoot, according to Maria Riva, Marlena's daughter, Borzaghi halted production one morning when he realized the star's steering wheel maneuvers did not match the backdrop scenery projection. If the sports car was supposed to turn left, Marlena would pull the wheel in the opposite direction. After a few retakes, the director stopped for lunch. Marlena went to another set and asked for a crew member for a favor. She needed to learn how to drive, or at least be able to fake it convincingly for the picture. They couldn't use her car and risk being seen, so they left the Paramount lot and used his car. The crew member taught Marlena the rudiments of driving. She tipped him handsomely, as was her habit. Marlena wasn't the type of star who sat back and expected to be served and pampered. Accounts from co-workers attest to Marlena's legendary generosity. On location shoot for Desire, she rose early in the morning to prepare a picnic lunch for her director, co-star, and cameraman. We're not talking ham and cheese. Marlena made a feast. Borzegi, Coop, and Lang had soup, a cheese plate, cakes, and three roast chickens, one for each man. The men were not the only beneficiaries. During the production of Desire, Marlena gave an extraordinary gift to makeup artist Dot Ponadell. Dot created the fabulous white eyeliner Marlena wore in her Paramount Pictures. Dot explained how she applied white eyeliner in the shelf of Marlena's lower eyelid. Dot's innovative makeup made eyes look fresh and bright and also created an innocent look that has worked especially well for a jewel thief's disguise 
as a housewife and a countess. Other stars in Paramount, such as Miriam Hopkins, Claudette Colbert, Mae West, and Carol Lombard, also loved the white eyeliner Dot used on Marlena and asked for the same. Dot noted she was stuck driving an old, reliable Ford, unreliable Ford, sorry, to the studio. One day on a break, Dot was escorted from the soundstage by Frank Borzaghi on one arm and Gary Cooper on the other. They walked her outside to the front door and there was a brand new Ford, a gift purchased for her by Marlena. Marlena also, on another picture, gave one of Dot's relatives a job as her stand-in. Desire did well at the box office and was critically acclaimed. Even the scolds in the Production Code Administration office admired it for the way, in their words, quote, it was a praiseworthy example of how to instill a sex punch in a picture without offending anyone. Blue Nose censors seemed oblivious to the morning after scene where Marlena and Coop are too exhausted from hot full moon sex. One fan of the picture nearly prompted Marlena to change the course of history. According to the FBI files on Dietrich, Adolf Hitler was obsessed with her, especially with her performance in Desire. He had his entourage sit through multiple back-to-back screenings. Apparently, Nazi officers grumbled because it meant they couldn't smoke or have a drink for hours. Later, von Ribbentrop contacted Marlena and invited her to spend the weekend with Hitler, who wanted her to sign a contract to return and become a German film star. Marlena seriously considered accepting the invitation to be Hitler's guest, and she tried to work out a plan to assassinate him. That's the only reason she'd go. Now that is a picture in itself. Marlena could have gone from playing a jewel thief to becoming an anti-fascist assassin. In January 1936, John Gilbert died. In the same month, William LeBaron replaced Lubitsch as head of production in Paramount. There are various accounts of how Lubitsch found out he was sacked. In one version, he found out in the studio's barber shop. In another, he was in the middle of a meeting in his office when he noticed a producer staring at a newspaper headline which announced Lubitsch out in Paramount. In a third account, Lubitsch was at home on a Sunday with guest Gottfried Reinhardt when Luella Parsons rang to deliver the bad news. Biographers noted that Marlena seized the opportunity to get a release from I Love to Soldier, her next picture, after battling with director Henry Hathaway. Hathaway decided he was going to control Marlena's appearance and de-glamorize her. Marlena stood her ground at first, asking Lubitsch to intervene. But once he was gone as head of production, Marlena used her contract for an exit and argued that Paramount violated the contracts of her uh, violated the terms of her contract, which stipulated Lubitsch should produce the picture. So she walked and signed with David O. Selznick for Garden of Allah with co-star Charles Boyer. In 1968, as part of a stage tour, Marlena Dietrich signed for two weeks at the Amundsen Theater in Los Angeles. 
the theater staff were told to expect a rough time from the star, that she would make unreasonable demands. Management decided to hire local Hollywood publicist Dale Olson, who had worked with Dietrich in the past. Dale greeted Marlena at the start of the engagement, confident in her, that he had been hired to protect her from them. In response, Marlena laughed. They should be afraid of her, she noted. There was one thing she really had to have that wasn't in her dressing room, she told him. Marlena needed a big refrigerator. Dale pointed out that the one in the room was large enough to hold the usual goodies that a star might want after a performance, things like champagne and caviar. It wasn't big enough, she replied. She needed the largest model. On opening night, Dale was curious and opened the family-sized kitchen refrigerator, expecting to see a batch of Marlena's famous goulash or some other homemade delicacy she had prepared. But to Dale's surprise, it was completely empty. Marlena had even removed the shelves inside. At the end of the evening, Marlena took a bow while members of the audience ran to blanket the stage with bouquets and single flowers. Once the theater had emptied and Marlena changed from heels into ballet flats, she walked back to the stage and collected every single flower. Then she arranged them in the refrigerator in buckets of water to keep them fresh for the following night's performance. She did the same thing every night for two weeks. By the last performance, the blooms were faded, but not as far as the audience could see. Marlena was a devotee of glamour throughout her life, as the story shows. Beauty had to be cared for. It wasn't disposable, like the flower she took back to the refrigerator each night at the final curtain. Thank you for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Marlena Dietrich, Life and Legend by Stephen Bach, published in 1992. Marlena Dietrich, The Life by Maria Riva, published in 1992. Gary Cooper, American Hero by Jeffrey Myers, published in 2001. Frank Borzaghi, The Life and Films of a Hollywood Romantic by Hervé Dumont. Ernest Lubitsch, Laughter in Paradise by Scott Eyman, published in 1993. About Face, The Life and Times of Dottie Ponadell, Makeup Artist to the Stars by Dot Ponadell, published in 2018. Thanks for listening. Join me next time when I talk about Virginia Bruce and the, Invis- and the Invisible Woman from 1940. If you enjoy the podcast, why not leave a nice review on iTunes or social media? Thanks very much.